0: who Jesus Christ is, and he confessed that Jesus Christ was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And the third and final step that leads us up this mountain that we will read here is Peter quickly turning to rebuke Jesus for speaking about his suffering and death. He wasn't able to understand that Jesus is higher than he ever expected, but also willing to go lower than he ever anticipated. So that Peter would confess him to be Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And then shortly after for Jesus to say, and yes, and I will die. Those two realities weren't matching for him. But we'll see here what Jesus Christ truly is, is the Lord of glory. And for a moment, God pulls back the curtain to demonstrate, to show who his son truly is. It says this, after Jesus had taught his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves, very alone, very secluded, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you, and one for Moses. And one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold. A bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said. This is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this. They fell on their faces. And were terrified. And then Jesus came and touched them. Saying rise Have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Now tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. And so the disciples are trying to piece this together, in which Jesus is saying, because there's this prophecy in Malachi, that Elijah was to come before the Messiah. And Jesus connects the dots for them. This one final time, as we've been getting hints from this throughout the Gospels, that he is saying, John the Baptist was that man. They rejected John the Baptist. I'm the Messiah, those to come after. And what they did to John, they will do to me. All this is so important, of course, that as he says that, he also in this very moment on top of that mountain as he orchestrated this whole event for his private disciples, three of his most intimate disciples, that he would manifest his glory to them to know that no one is taking my life from me. I really am God. And I only do what I want to do. And what I want to do, what you need to hear this morning, is what I want to do is love you. I want to give my life for you. Because he struck them all down to the ground under the weight of his own creatorship, his unique Godship, his glory. Later, even when they come to arrest Jesus, he simply pronounces who he is, and everyone fell to the ground and then proceeded to arrest him. He wanted to, because he loves you. He loves me. There's a particular sacrifice in giving to Jesus that is hard to understand especially in the backdrop of what we see now in this transfiguration. The fact that's so counter to the world that he would be so high and that he would humble himself so low. We're going into Easter, there is Monday Thursday, that's the moment in which Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And they had no idea what he was doing. All the more when they realize he's just a great teacher, How much more is it when he actually is the Lord of glory? That yes, he will wash your feet. He will come beside you and speak tender, soft words, though not to scare you or break you down. And yes, he'll even give his own life for you. Not antithetical, but actually very much because he is the Lord of glory. You see? We in the world can understand that. Someone this big, this important, this powerful wouldn't be doing these things. But see, that is our sinful nature. That is the brokenness of this world. The reality of God's very nature is that he is so marvelous and glorious and loving that he would go and do anything out of love. Because one of his glories, one of his perfections is loveliness. When Jesus is transcended on that mountain, I love how the phrase says, His garment was as white as light. I think that's beautiful. I thought about that this morning. Because sometimes, what every morning, I meditate through the sermon, and then I preach it, and it's entirely different than how I meditate on it. But the reality this morning, just hitting again on my mind, was the purity of Christ. That the glory of His light is this spotless whiteness, this, this thing, this, this symbolism of just absolute, holy, transcendent goodness, a type of goodness we've never tasted or known. That whatever he was wearing that day, some type of fabric weaved somewhere in some town in Palestine, perfect white light. It's the goodness of the glory of God. I long to be that way. Do you not not wish you could just say that you were as white as light? That there was no darkness in any corner of your being? You have to understand that this thing he did on the mountain was not for him. It all starts by him saying, I'll take three of my most intimate disciples and I'll show them. See, this is a vision. He particularly is called a vision. At the very end, Jesus says, Now, uh, tell no one of the vision that you saw. The vision was not for Jesus, you see. It was for him, his disciples. It's for you and me. We'll see here. Peter, James, and John come. They're going to this mountain. We don't know what the mountain is. The most immediate context we got was Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus was speaking to Peter, about building a church on a rock. The foot of this great mountain called Mount Hermon is where Caesarea Philippi was. It's the tallest mountain in that whole region, very far north. So there's a good chance this could be Mount Hermon is where that mountain is. He took him way up high, many, many meters, largest mountain ever. But also, church tradition has him transcending on a mountain called Mount Tabor, which is a little further south. But then again, we're told it was a six days journey, wherever he was going, that he could have been that way. See, in the Eastern Church, they speak of a Taboric light. That's where they get that term, uh, from this mountain. Now, there's some differences between how Eastern mysticism works, even in Eastern Orthodoxy. But they do understand this light to be uncreated. You see, Jesus was illumined, but by no other source... That's what's all the more beautiful of this. Moses went up to a mountain and his face shone and glowed as a result of being radiated upon by the very glory of God. But here we find Jesus on this mountain and he is the one who is transfigured. He is the one whose face shone like the sun and his garments were as white as light. Moses and Elijah, no. And all that before even this other thing This glory cloud comes. That is, Jesus is illumined even before the Father or the Spirit arrive. I'm personally convinced, and I would say, it is always a try. The Trinity of the Old Testament is the word spoken with some type of manifestation of the glory or the cloud or the wind matched with this creator God power. You find this in the temple. You find this in creation. You find this all throughout the Old Testament. And it's all coming together in which there is a voice thundering as God. There is this glory, this cloud that actually has light coming from it, which usually, in my personal opinion, is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And then you have the third person in the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, of his own autotheos light. He is glowing himself because he is God. It's this image, this image of how God has always been from the very beginning of the first page of Scripture till now, the Spirit hovering, the Word speaking, all creation being. It's an amazing image of Jesus. This bright cloud comes down, and that's when things change, you see. Peter is all practical. It's just like a normal American. Oh, there's three of you. Okay, I'll make three tenths. Like, Jesus is a little shinier. Okay. But then, the glory cloud and the voice. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And then this command, listen to him. And they fell on their faces and were terrified. All of a sudden, the tense didn't matter anymore. It's a certain glory to God that we are not constituted for. That we could not handle if he were to show himself to us. And right when Peter is thinking about making a big tent revival, God shut it down. And said, this is holy ground. You're missing it all. Listen to him. So this is a vision To listen to. A vision, eyes, to listen to through ears. How ironic it is that one of the most remarkable visions that we ever have of all of Jesus, and with nothing more than, listen to him. Think of that. It's a vision. It's a remarkable vision. To see all of this, be taken in by it, processing what it all means, But really the end, the moral of the story is nothing more than the very voice of God born by the majestic glory of the glory cloud that hovers over them says nothing more than what you and I know already today is we need to listen to Jesus. Listen to. This is a vision to listen to. I remember years ago I saw a documentary that I stumbled across for whatever reason. And I don't remember why or how, but I do remember what it was because it was remarkable. It's a documentary about people with particular intelligence, uh, savants, they, they say, you know. Um, people that can just do remarkable things with their minds. Um, and this one man, uh, he's still alive today. This video was a fairly older. He was a younger man at the time. Uh, Daniel Temet. Uh, you might have seen him on TV every once in a while or on news. People interview him just because he has a remarkable ability. See, Daniel, um, he can see and hear and hear and see in a different way than you and I do. So so Daniel was diagnosed as a small boy with a mild version of autism. Okay, so high-functioning autism. And as a small child, he had this tremendous affinity for numbers. And so when he would hear numbers... Immediately in his mind, he can't remember a time when it wasn't this way, that he would have impulses, visions. That is, he would hear things like numbers, like the number two, and he would have visions of shapes and colors associated with that number. And uh, well, that's not normal. I mean, if you experience that, not everyone. I mean, let's. I don't. Maybe I'm the only one, but that's not normal. And so he always, for the youngest time, as a boy, he just thought everybody had this. This is how everybody understood numbers. And then eventually, you know, he's getting picked on and made fun of, and he's a little socially awkward and all these things. But he found out that he had a tremendous talent, a gift, really, that he not only was diagnosed with autism, he had another diagnosis that wasn't so much of a limit. It was actually a gift. It's called synesthesia. One in every 20 people have some version of it. He just had a very extreme version in which synapses in your brain are different in which you actually take in auditory information and visual information and they cross in your brain so that what you hear is associated with colors or sounds or when you see certain numbers, they always appear in a similar color. So for example, for for Daniel, the number four was always blue for him. And the number four always had the shape of a small sliver. All these numbers had three-dimensional shapes in his mind. Now, that's funny when a kid tells you that and people just kind of ignored him and said whatnot. But then he could do remarkable math calculations. without. He just blinked really fast and then just multiplied massive numbers in a tremendous way. And so they thought, maybe there's more to this. So as he got older, they actually brought him to a test. A bunch of mathematicians printed up the number pi on multiple pieces of paper. So if you remember what the number pi is, the ratio of the circumference and diameter of a circle, it's 3.14, and a lot more numbers after that. It's forever. Three point one four one five two six five. six, five, see, I have to look down. I, they're not colorful for me. Well what he did, you hear, he cited 22,000 of those digits from memory, in one sitting for five hours. And that's when everyone said, oh, he's not making this up. He's seeing and hearing these numbers almost as if it was a language, as if he was just talking for five hours. We just wonder, what is that like? Well, it's like the gospel, you see. This this is a vision to listen to. You have to listen to this vision. It's for the disciples only. People want this vision. The Pharisees were asking for it. And Jesus only gave it to Peter, to James, to John. It's different than the time when Jesus was baptized earlier in the Gospel of Matthew he went into the water and ascended out and the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove and a voice said, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But it doesn't say what it says here. On the mountain when he glows like light and everyone's afraid, it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The voice is added. Another point. And this time, unlike the baptism, where everyone just stood around and said, look, a dove. These men are falling down, petrified and terrified, under the manifest presence of the glory of God. So this is very much a vision in which we must listen to. Who is Jesus Christ? It is a vision here. But only for us, it is a vision that we must listen to. It is a foretaste, nothing more than heaven. Heaven. In Matthew 13, earlier in the gospel, he actually describes the end of our life. The end of this creation, he says, in Matthew 13, 43, the righteous, those in Christ, he says, shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But that's the very phrase used to describe Jesus in this moment. That his face shone like the sun. It's the difference only between Projection and reflection. Theologians speak of effulgent light and refulgent light. There is a light of the sun that is actually creating the light. There is a light of the moon that actually absorbs the light and reflects the light, so that when He manifests His glory to us as His face shines like the sun, Those who are righteous with him in his kingdom shall also shine like the sun. He is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. And for him to go into that glory, he had to enter through the cross. And right after teaching on the cross, and not only commanding his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him to death, he shows them what waits them on the other side that I will return to the glory that I once had with the Father. And you with me, I will bring you to this glory. But it is a vision that must be listened to. The Westminster Confession describes it this way. The bodies of men after death return to the dust and see corruption, but their souls... "...which neither die nor sleep, have an immortal subsistence, immediately, immediately return to God who gave them. And the souls of the righteous, being made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they will behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies." You are only one heartbeat away from this. Just a sliver in the space-time continuum. That if you were to die, you will behold his face in light. If you were to die, where will you go? This is a vision you have to listen to because you won't see it until it's too late. It is a vision that you must listen to. But for them, see, it's not such a beatific vision as what we call it at the end. When we see God in all his goodness and glory And every dark spot of you is washed away in light. And you have no more suffering. You've bore the crosses he's ordained for your life. You never pick them up again. You never struggle with lust and sin and envy and turmoil and hatred. You never have anyone cursing at you. You never have any sorrow left. It is over and it's all done. And you behold him in that glory. And you are blessed. It's a beatific, a blessed vision. But you see, what the disciples have here is not that yet. When God manifested himself in that way, it touched them for sure, but not in a good way. They were absolutely terrified. They fell like a bag of bones to the ground. It's as though their body wasn't ready for this. The manifest glory of God shook them to the core. They were terrified and fell. And then it was over, you see, in God's mercy. See, there's nothing necessarily inherently good on beholding God unless there is something inherently good in us. It's not necessary. I mean, so the one guy that somebody referenced me to is a Habermas or something. He talks about being healthy and looking at the sun in the morning to get your right circadian rhythm. But the thing is, and I did that this morning, it hurts your eyes So why would you think if you saw God? Everyone says, I'd believe if I saw him. Are you sure that wouldn't hurt at all? Are you sure you want to see him? Do you really want to see him? The only blessedness of this, is not a very joyful experience for the disciples, is that God has to prepare us for this. That's why he says particularly, now, No bragging to the other disciples that you were here and you got to see this. And don't go around preaching it because they're going to try to make me king and you're going to misinterpret it. After I die, and then rise from the dead, go ahead and tell them what you saw. The glory of God is not good. It makes no sense except for God. Fixing our sin and giving us the ability to enter into that without being burnt alive. You see, there's no need to mention this glory until Jesus Christ would first die and then rise again. We'll see in the weeks ahead, the Easter sermon series, how he will prepare our bodies, particularly in his resurrection, for that glory. But until then, Jesus warns them, do not talk about it. The problem, of course, is this. If God manifests himself with great power and transcendent demonstrations and signs from heaven, they do not produce the effect desired. They actually distance us from God. They produce fear and wandering and working ways around, avoiding entering into God's glorious goodness. Because we are not. God has to intimately manifest himself in gentleness. He has to clothe his glory in skin. He has to be born of a woman. And then when they're all afraid, and the glory of God shining above them is there, causing them to be cast to the ground, only then you realize what it was all for. Jesus comes. We're told that he just gently touches them. And in very human words, he says, don't be afraid. Stand up. And when they looked, praise God, it was just the way it was before. Just gentle Jesus by himself. And you realize, that's what this is all about. He's coming close to us in his son. Because of our weakness. And that if he came any other way, there would be no communion. There would be no closeness. It would just be fear and wrath and destruction. And so, of course, the vision is a vision you have to listen to. And it ends with the only simple command is, this was a great show. Now listen to him. Because there's no other way. Listen to him. Listen to this man who speaks like you, talks like you, sounds like you. He doesn't look impressive. But he is. He's deliberately not impressive. So you come. Do you hear the gospel in this? Can you come to Jesus that way? God gave hints of all this in creation. Lights, we cannot see. Sounds that create sight. Of course we know. Electromagnetic spectrum is a spectrum. There's only a small portion of it that's called visible light. Right below red. Red is infrared. Our retinas pick up red, but not infrared. But it's still light. It's just not visible light. Of course there's a glory to God that we cannot see. If he wants us to see it, we'll see it. But just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's there. Of course there's a sound that gives sight. In God's very creation, the beautiful animals he made plummet the deep, dark oceans with sound or fly in the dark skies with sound. Sonar, listening and seeing God has made the world that way. Why is it so hard for someone to say, Oh, I could not believe in Christ until I see Christ? I can understand the gospel i can't I can't believe it with my ears, but don't you understand that is his mercy that the gospel would be through the ears? Michael Horton says particularly about this kind of concept. We believe so that someday we might see. We believe what we have heard so that we might actually have seen what we believe. Or Paul says it in Second Corinthians 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. In fact, Peter later in Second Peter writes his letter recounting this event as Jesus had rised and he's able to freely speak about it again. He actually has the wisdom to understand why this was done because you know as you read through the Gospels that if Peter had the chance to speak about it the next day, he probably would have become the next pope and said, I'm the best. I saw the transfiguration. Now though there is a papist tendency in human nature, 2 Peter 1.16 is not that. Peter interprets this event, the real Pope, Peter. No, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, knowing the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. See, we received honor and glory from the Father when this voice was born by the majestic glory. And listen to what he says, how he interprets this whole thing. We heard the very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on that holy mountain. And therefore, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. So he said, I saw a tremendous vision. The voice born by the majestic glory honored Jesus Christ before our eyes. He was transfixed. Therefore, Listen to the prophetic word. That was the whole point. As the voice said, this is a vision you must listen to. So Peter says, here's the great vision. Read your Bibles. Take in the prophetic word and pay attention to it. That was actually the moral of the story for Peter. Do you hear this vision? Have you understood Jesus this way? See, faith in this moment as we have it is only preparing us to establish an appetite to take on the actual vision of God, to actually enter in what was now faith by ears, to have faith by sight. But we have to have ears first. Particularly, John Owen says this No one shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter who does not in some measure behold it by faith here in this world. And the pretended desires of many to behold the glory of Christ in heaven, who have no view of it by faith while they are here in this world, are nothing but self-deceiving imaginations. You see, the ears we have, the faith we have to hear of Jesus Christ, lean into that and love him and want him and desire him, that is the precursor for seeing him without ever having that faith or that desire toward him means it is not going to end in this type of sight. It is not going to end in a beatific vision. So this all becomes clear. And as we close, to prepare, actually here in communion is nothing more than a vision that has to be heard. Before we get there, I want to see these two people on the mountain. I want you to see that. There's Moses and Elijah. It's two stories of two men who had two particular signs from heaven. And they were on two mountains. Everything that Jesus has done. So Moses is on Mount Sinai. Great sign from heaven. The glory of God falls upon the mountain. Moses asked, Lord, show me your glory. Lord says, I will have my goodness pass before you. Moses glows like Jesus was, transfixed because he saw the pre-incarnate Christ. And then all the people around at the bottom of the hill, they simply say, Moses, now, you speak to us in your human words. We have heard God from the mountain, and he is too mighty for us. We've seen the smoke and the fire and all these signs from heaven and we want to be away. You go and you speak to us for God. And so there was a great manifestation of God's power and glory aside from heaven and only resulted in a harder heart and distance from him. This is Moses on the mountain. Why is Elijah on the mountain with Jesus? Elijah had a great sign from heaven again. The same thing the Pharisees were asking from Jesus. He goes and God commands him to rebuke the wicked king of Israel, Ahab, returning to idolatry. And so he says, here's what we'll do. Command all the prophets of Baal to come to Mount Carmel and bring two bulls and we'll have two altars. And so they did. And all the prophets of Baal cried out to Baal that fire would fall. For they said, The God who answers by fire, let him be the one true God. And so they cried out all day to the afternoon. They made a scene, they cut themselves, they spoke, hundreds of them all, and were told, particularly, it says, that there was no voice. There was no answer. There was no fire to consume the sacrifice. And then Elijah said, now it is my turn. And so he took his sacrifice and he called out and said particularly, O Lord, our God, let it be known that I am your servant and you are the one true God. Answer me so this people may know that you are God and that their hearts would be turned to you. See, give me a sign from heaven. It's everything anyone would want. Let's do it. Let's have the big sign. Let's have the big test to see who is the one true God. And Elijah enters into that to say, Oh, Lord, make you manifest your great glory and power in such a way so that everyone's hearts would be turned to you, not so conveyed on themselves and not so sin inward grown, but let them be turned back to the one true God. Let them look up to behold you for who you are. And guess what? God did it. Fire came down, consumed the whole thing. Everyone fell down again on their faces as they did at Mount Sinai, as they did at the mountain with Jesus' transfiguration. And no repentance. Do you see why Jesus didn't answer the Pharisees? They want a sign from heaven. And Jesus simply says, we've done that one already. It's not about fire from heaven. Immediately after this, King Ahab's wife Jezebel found out and wanted to go kill him. No repentance, no one true God, just murder in the heart. And so Elijah runs away. And do you know where he runs? God leads him to the same mountain that he met Moses, Mount Sinai. So here we have with Jesus the only two people that have these remarkable visions of God at that particular mountain of God at Mount Sinai. The story goes that Elijah ran to Mount Sinai and God showed him the truth. He's distraught and he says, I'm the only one left. They've forsaken all your prophets and killed them and torn down all your altars. Israel's abandoned the whole covenant. Their hearts could not be turned back to you. I have failed. I'm the last good prophet left. And then God said, Elijah, come to this mountain. Let me show you something. And he stood out there on the mountain. It said, the Lord passed by him, just as he did with Moses, with a great strong wind. And it broke the rocks and shattered the mountain. But it says, and the Lord was not in the wind. And then after the wind came a great earthquake. And Elijah was told, the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after a great earthquake came, a great fire. And Elijah was told, the Lord is not in the fire. All these great signs and wonders. And then there was a still, small voice. A quiet or low whisper. And he covered his face because he was in the presence of the glory of God. Do you see? Listen to him. It has all led to this moment. I will build my church, Peter, on your rock. No spread across the world. The gates of hell will not prevail. And what is the church? Nothing more than this. This voice of mine. Speaking the gospel to you. No miraculous signs from heaven. No thunder, no clouds. But it is power. To change the heart. But Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. See, for the spoken word is actually where God decides to meet. The spoken word. See, it is not enough. It is not enough to have the eyes. You must be converted by your ears. It must go into your heart through your ears. He is the beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now listen to him. That there would be a common speech as men, as regular humans would speak regular human words. But the spirit of God would come and quicken and convert the millions. That it is not just only a remnant of a few thousand. But God has chosen to do this. To get to your heart. And anything you throw in the way as an obstacle. The word cuts through. The word cuts right through to know that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And there is no other God beside him. We believe in the word is accompanied by the spirit. And it leads to beholding the glory of the face of Jesus Christ. Now is the day for our ears. There will be a day for our eyes. But if you cannot trust your ears now, how could you ever trust your eyes then? Your eyes could deceive you. But the truth is in the gospel, listen to Christ. Father God, you are saving us by our ears that we might be fully saved by our eyes, beholding your glory. Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us as we take this communion together. Lord, it is a particular symbol of our unity in you, that we have a love that cannot be broken, for your body was already broken, and that is our unity. In Jesus Christ alone, Lord, we ask. Amen. Will you please stand if you're able, Elaine?